Enjoy local voices. Enjoy local opinions. All on one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast DC is the new local app with hundreds of DC area podcasts. Featuring some of the DC area's best personalities, pundits, and provocateurs. Earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts you love instantly. With new programs being added every week, don't hesitate. Download Podcast DC now for free. Available in the App Store or in Google Play. Podcast DC. Listen local. Say It Loud Network presents Corner Table Talk. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Corner Table Talk. I'm your host, Brad Johnson. You know, I've been thinking a bit lately about the title of ambassador. And, um, you know, by definition, that's a person who acts as representative or promoter of a specified activity. But it's also someone who is known for spreading goodwill and the good word. There are a lot of famous ambassadors, Ambassador Andrew Young, even Angelina Jolie is known as an ambassador. And my dear sister, Ambassador Shabazz, whose goodwill spreading I have not only witnessed, but I've also been the beneficiary of over the years. And I can tell you, you know, it's, it's hard work and it's and there is a commitment that is required. So the title of ambassador is not one to be taken lightly. And uh, those of you who have listened to prior episodes of Corner Table Talk know that New York City is my hometown. Despite having lived on the West Coast for many years, New York will always be meaningful to me for the time spent there and the many friendships that I still maintain. So thinking about this episode today and wanting to touch down on the idea of people who make it their mission to do for others and spread the good word. My man, Musa Jackson, came to mind. So I reached out to Musa and asked him if he would be willing to come on Corner Table Talk and share some conversation with me, and he agreed. So Musa is born and raised in Harlem, and his handsome face is recognizable to many. He's one of the pioneering black male models. He was discovered by the beauty editor of GQ magazine, and I think they're known for having good taste. Uh, He's modeled for GQ, Vogue, and the prestigious New York Times Fashion of the Times pages. He's also walked the runways in Paris and Milan for Jean-Paul Gaultier and was the first black male model in a nationwide campaign for The Gap. Musa also, he's a man of many talents. He wrote a column for Uptown Magazine, where actually the the title of Harlem Ambassador, someone came up with for him and that and that stuck. So we're definitely going to talk about that given our theme. And most recently, he is the CEO and editor in chief of the aptly named Ambassador Digital Magazine, which is based out of Harlem. And it also it highlights a really diverse group of cultural influencers, some folks that might not necessarily be bold faced names, but In our community, they are known and known for something special. So Musa has made it his mission to kind of shed the light on some of these people. And and I can tell you firsthand that the photography is beautiful and his taste shows. So I want to talk a little bit about that and and kind of dig into uh, where Musa's eye got developed. But most recently, and one of the coolest things that I've heard about in a long time, Musa is part of a project that is Quest Love's directorial debut called The Summer of Soul. And the story chronicles the untold true story of the greatest outdoor concert in Harlem history from the summer of 1969. And when Musa starts to walk through some of the names that, uh, that appear in some 45 hours of footage that until this film will be seen has not been seen publicly. Uh, you will be blown away by some of the talent that uh, that was on that roster. So with that said, Harlem Ambassador Musa Jackson, welcome to Corner Table Talk. Uh, thank you so much, Brad. Uh, this is an honor to be here at Corner Table Talk. You know, I the minute I heard about Corner Table Talk and, and you, I said, this is a perfect fit because you are so magnificent with people. Um, you get, you bring us together. So I'm just honored, honestly, to be here. I really appreciate that, brother. And, and same back to you. So we kick things off over here at Corner Table Talk in the restaurant 
world of terminology with what I call short order questions. So let me fire a few at you and, and get Got your it. take. So tell me, Musa, what's in heavy rotation on your playlist these days? What are you listening to? Oh, God. I You know, my playlist really doesn't really change. I am a product of my time. So I go back to 90s hip hop, 90s R&B. <laughs> so a little early 2000s and then 70s just to kind of and, reason, and I won't go into so many names because we can just, you know, there's some Whitney, there's some this, you know, Luther's and all that, right? It just makes me feel good. It just puts me in a mood that um, stimulates my creativity, my peace. Um, it, it brings back a really good time. So 90s hip hop, as we know, was one of the best times for hip hop, you know, uh, as well as R&B was, was really uh, banging back then. So I like to kind of keep it, you know, uh, a little more old school. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm with you. You know, I was listening to some Luther the other day and Luther never gets old, man. But boy, he could just rock you, man. He could stir your soul. Whitney you know? doesn't get old. I no. mean, you know, uh, I was listening to even going back to, to Gladys and but just, you know, just certain people that have this classic sound and this feel good sound. And you and I both know we come from that era. You know, you can go even further back. You know, I'm a like I said, I grew up uh, with an older brother who let, who let me his back in those days wasn't even a playlist. We just put the, you know, I think the playlist was putting the stacking <laughs> 45s on top. Stacking the 45s. Playlist, yeah. Right. So, you know, there was I mean, you know, people say, damn, he's dating himself. But I, the OJs and the Commodores and, you know, uh, stylistics. You know, those things, those those groups just put me in a, a mood. You know, they had a specific sound that um, we just don't hear today. No, nah, man. Know? And, you know, we'll, we'll move on. But I, I wanted to yeah. mention that I was listening to a podcast um, with one of the Gamble and Huff guys who was writing for the stylistics. And he talked about where he got inspired and he was walking down the street one day. And a guy, you know, jogged up beside him speaking to a woman who, you know, was a few feet ahead and he called to her and she turned around and it wasn't who he thought. And when you know, that's where the lyric today, I saw somebody who looked just like you. I, you know, I thought it was you, but it wasn't, you know. Um, so, yeah, man, I mean, those lyrics, those those performances, man, are uh, will stick with us forever. All right. So Harlem guy, tell me your favorite walk in Harlem, man. Mm. My favorite, oh, Lenox Avenue. Lenox. Lenox Avenue. From where to I live, where? I live on Washington Street, which is near uh, Marcus Garvey Park. And Lenox Avenue is really one of our main thoroughfares. So I hit 116th, and I know 125th Street is like the stop point, but I keep going all the way up. So to me, Lenox Avenue in general. And it, it starts to take on different um, feels as you go further up. It, it, as you go further from 125th Street to 145th Street, you still feel that Harlem that I grew up with. Right. You know, they haven't quite gentrified that. Right. But, right. You know, Not north of 125th Street so much. Correct. Yeah. And it's just one of the it's it's a, one of the most beautiful boulevards. It's open. It's one of the, you know one of the uh, widest boulevards in the city. Uh, it kind of reminds you a little bit of Paris in a way. Mm -hmm. So and it's popping. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I would imagine walking with you is is not a short trip, man. Because it's not a short I, trip. No. You get stopped along the way. Um, so, and I hope this I hope this doesn't put you on the spot because I know you've no. got many places, and I have another question where you might be able to feed that in, um, uh, work those those places in. But tell me, do you have a favorite restaurant in the city? You can you can you're allowed to leave Harlem if you like. A favorite rest a favorite restaurant. Yeah. In the city. Um, that's a really, really tough question for someone who loves food, uh, loves all kinds of food. Um, I'll say I'll say I love. OK, uptown, it's Melba's. Downtown, it's Milos. Oh, OK. Good call. OK. Good call. Uh, right. Right. Absolutely, um, man. Legendary. So Right. So we could kind of keep, you know, I love Melba's because Melba sort of took took over for Sylvia. Sylvia's is the icon mm -hmm. of soul food in Harlem. But Melba really kind of kept that going in a way that's really now. Mm -hmm. um, and her food is great. And she's 
magnificent. I love Agreed. a good, yeah. I love a good chef. I love a good, I love great service. I love good food. Um, so when you mesh all those things together, it's going to give you a great experience. And she, yeah. Yeah, I love Melba too, man. We had her on the program a few weeks ago and, and yep. she's dynamic. Yeah. Um, Musa, tell me the traits you most value in a friend. Ooh, in a friend, you said? Yeah. Or in, in general, but I'll say a yep. friend. <laughs> in a friend. Um, <laughs> loyalty um, is huge on my list. Honesty, you know, I love it. You know, my best friend will tell me when I when when when, when my stuff is off. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. And and keep and always keep saying, "Hey, Musa, I love." He'll say things like this, "Musa, I love you, but I got it. <laughs> got to reel it back in." And I listen to him because you know why? I know his heart is all about making sure that I'm in check. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. And and his love for me. So that, that that's you know honesty, loyalty, um, traits. Have a sense of humor. Right. <laughs> I don't we like gotta laugh, friend. man. We have to laugh. <laughs> I don't right? want a friend that just continually comes to me with problems. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, listen, I'm an empath. Mm-hmm. So I get all kinds of people. I think that's part of the reason why I'm probably, you know, known up in Harlem because everybody comes to me and a lot of times they come to me with their problems and that's cool, but have a sense of humor. Don't yeah. take life so seriously that you can't enjoy what's in front of you. For sure, man. Good words. Tell me your, your fondest childhood memory around food. Around food. Um, really going to my cousins, my cousins in Harlem. Um, my mother was a decent cook. You know, everybody talks about their mother and their mother can put their foot in, in the pan and, and, and all that good stuff. My mother didn't quite put her foot in it. She was a capable, uh, a, 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 a cook, you know, so the food was good. But when we went to my cousins, okay, uptown, you know, that's, I would just like look forward to going to my cousins because I knew it was just going to the de- delicious. Everything was going to be delicious. Everything. The ribs were, were, were coming off the bone. Uh, turkey. Uh, I don't know. You guys eat turkey, turkey uh, tips, you know, very Southern. We're very Southern mm-hmm. turkey tips. And um, I even liked the Oprah and I wasn't an Oprah fan. <laughs> my cousin. Was that part of the family from the South or where in the South? Yes. Yes, my family, um, my mother's family migrated um, in the uh, migrated to Harlem in uh, 1919. Wow. They arrived in Harlem right before the Ren- Harlem Renaissance. Mm-hmm. So and brought pretty much all the traditions from South Carolina. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, if you know Harlem, many families are from South Carolina. Mm-hmm. It's one of probably the biggest southern um, group is probably from South Carolina. Sylvia's from South Carolina, Melba, you know, all of us from South Carolina. Strong representation. Mm-hmm. All right, Musa. So it's Friday night mm-hmm. and you're taking a friend from out of town mm-hmm. around Harlem, maybe maybe somebody from L.A. that is, mm-hmm. you know, very excited to visit and knows that mm-hmm. you know your way around. Mm-hmm. So walk me through what that night looks like. Where is it going to start and where is it going to end? Mm. That's a really good question. And you know, it's interesting. Um, it's interesting. It's more interesting today than it would have been two years ago, post-pandemic. So, you know, I would easily included, which I still love, Red Rooster, right? But they don't have that Monday night feel, Rakeem Walker. That was a big part of, of the nightlife. But I would still, let's still include Red Rooster. I would take them, I would probably start off and have a really easy dinner, at Sete Pani, uh, the first outdoor cafe in Harlem on 120th and Lenox. Then right across the street, if you want the fantastic cocktails and just the vibe is Bar of Wine. What's it called? Bar of Wine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I might shimmy over to just take you over to 8th Avenue and we might just hit up, just because we can, we might hit up um, uh, Boulevard Bistro. You know, uh, then we might hit up, um, even for some more drinks, we probably go to Vinateria, which is on 8th Avenue. Um, it's a really great spot for uh, just, it's, a, it's got really great ambiance. It has wonderful food, uh, Mediterranean, Spanish, Italian, 
uh, food, but the cocktails are really great. Um, and the vibe is cool. And then um, let's go uptown. Let's go even further uptown. I would probably uh, hit, I said, I mentioned Red Rooster. I would go to Red Rooster now just because it's, it's kind of become iconic. Mm-hmm. So just because they, people say, oh, I've heard of Red Rooster, right? So you go, you get the vibe. Um, maybe we'll have and the bar is there. great. The room the is bar, amazing. The bar is yeah. open. It's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so you're going to get all of that at, at Red Rooster. You might see Marcus, mm-hmm. you know, walking mm-hmm. walking in Red Rooster. So that's another celebrity sighting. Um, but we would then travel a little further uptown and I might hit the Shrine or Utanga. Utanga and the Shrine are owned by the same person, Abdul. And Utanga, is, it's, it's, it's an African space and it's got great food, great ambiance. But right next door, the Shrine is kind of more of like a chill spot. It has a musical venue, a lot of good music. And if you just want to like have a really kind of open, free, multicultural experience, I would go I would go to Yatanga. Oh man, and, well you um, just laid out my next trip, man. I'm hanging with you <laughs> and that's where we're going. That's our nightcap spot. And I made all the checks, going. man. We got we have the list. All right. So last um, last one of these, Musa. Who past or present would you most like to host at an intimate dinner party? Past or present? Yeah. Those someone still with us or possibly someone that's moved on, couple people coming up. Okay. Mind. I I I'm I really would like to host one person. I met him as a child, but I feel like I would love to hear what he, I would just love to be in his presence and his vibe in 2021. And that would be James Baldwin. I knew you were going to say that. You knew I was going to say that. I'm Everybody right there with you that. though, man. Wow. Yep. Yeah. I just know it would, it would give me everything I wanted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's witty. He's, 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 he's got the best, um, uh, sayings. He's, um, brilliant. He's funny. He's, um, you know, uh, he gives, I mean, he's, he's fantastic, phenomenal. He's like one of those original, uh, creatures that only come along once in a lifetime. It's so, so true, man. You watch him these days in any, you know, anything that we can find. I know we latch on to, um, the old YouTube clips of him speaking mm-hmm. anywhere, and the amount of intellect that just pours out of him spontaneously is, is just incredible. Right. Beyond yeah. parallel. Yep. All right. Well, Musa, so thank you, man, again for, for making some time. Um, I want to dive in here a little bit okay. um, into this idea, the concept of ambassadorship, which I, I think you are really well built for and, and certainly more than up to the task. Some people, you know, know very early on in life what they want to do. Others, you know, it, it takes takes a while. It happens later. And in, in some cases, we end up in careers that don't align with our with our passion. But it certainly seems, man, that you have found, you know, your lane and you, you know, you thrive in it. So I'm curious, man, going back to Uptown Magazine, take us back. What what year was that? Tell us a little bit about that column, how it came about, the subject matter. What was the inspiration for it? And then who who coined that Harlem ambassador? And and obviously it stuck. So walk us through that experience a bit. So it was uh, 2015. Um, I was uh, approached by the, I knew Len Burnett mm-hmm. and Brett, Brett Wright, who actually owned the magazine. But it's, you know, but like most magazines, it's run by its editor-in-chief. And um, that was Esau Harris at the time. And basically I was approached. They said, you know, you do a lot of things in Harlem. You're well-known. You know, when people think of Harlem, out of town, foreigners, you know, you're in the top two. And we want to offer you a column. And so, I, so they said, it'll, it'll be around you because you're very social. So I said, okay, let's call it My Umtown World. And, they, and so they said, we're going to also write a, a feature on you. And the title of feature was the title of the feature was the Harlem Ambassador. And literally, once it was sort of put out there, it was just like a it was like a a, a, a perfect fit. Um, something that I when I heard it and I saw it, I knew this is something that's going to really catch on. I don't you know I, I got a call from Freddie Jackson, and Freddie Jackson, who's also Harlem born, iconic called me up and said, you know, you are, you know, you are the Harlem ambassador. There's nobody that can do this job but you. So what I need for you to do 
is put your feet <laughs> in those slippers <laughs> and walk as the Harlem ambassador. And the minute he said that to, he said, because if you don't do it, somebody else will, and they will not be from Harlem. So and tell me, at that, the time, did you, did you feel like that Harlem really need, did, did Harlem need a spokesperson? Was it, was there, was there a message that you thought was missing from the, from the narrative that you knew you were uniquely qualified to deliver? Well, I can say this. I think we all saw the changes in Harlem. We all saw gentrification happening, people that we know and love being priced out, people that we know and love who had brownstones deciding to sell and move on. So we were losing some of just the, the locals, hmm. the people. You know, my cousin said, you know, Harlem is the people. You know, you can you can put buildings, you can knock down buildings, but as long as you're standing, you're Harlem. And I never forgot that. And so I knew that what I was doing was really, which was just a part of me, was just kind of representing that unique thing that is Harlem. You know, that only someone who's born and bred in Harlem, and, and in my case, w- why it was important for me to do it is that I, my father will be a hundred years old, just to give you perspective. My father, my, my father was born in 1921. So I don't, I have a father who's probably some people's grandfather. So my perspective was automatically, so I'll get along with anyone 80 years old. Like they'd be like, oh, how do you know about that? And I said, my dad's a little older than you are. You could be his kid. <laughs> so I knew about jazz. I knew about certain cultures. I knew about, you know, there were certain people in my life that were of a certain, Lena Horn, we probably, I don't know if we can get into that, was a mentor of mine. Mm-hmm. You know, um, mentioned before, James Baldwin. Most people don't have that perspective. Right. And so I knew that if there was anyone that was going to be able to bridge gaps in a seamless way mm-hmm. from this generation to that generation, there weren't that many. I would probably say it's me. <laughs> you know, I was um, I was visiting and I was at staying least I in Harlem. In Harlem. Hmm? Yeah, I was staying in Harlem a few years ago um, at Brenton Brewster's, uh, this is uh, Airbnb. And right. um, I ran into you at the Boulevard Cafe. And, you know, quite honestly, Musa, I was, you know, I was uptown for a reason. I just wanted that feeling. I wanted that vibe. I wanted to really, you know, kind of put my feet on the street and walk the neighborhood and and seeing you come in that night, man, with with your energy and your familiar face, man, and the embrace that I got. That's that is exactly what you do, you know, and I think that uh, those of us who have moved away and even those of us, you know, who, who are still there, you're the you're the continuity. I think that uh, that we all look for, man. And, it, and it's really good to, to see you moving about when, when you're there. Thank you. Thank you. I yeah. appreciate it. Tell That's me tell me a little bit about the um, about the column that you wrote. So it was called My Uptown World. And basically it was specifically uh, well, we, we kind of went downtown after a certain period. But for the most part, it was chronicling the social world of Harlem. So uh, Spring Gala you know, Apollo Spring Gala, Studio Museum of Harlem Gala, or an opening of a gallery uh, and things like opening of a restaurant, you know, um, businesses that were opening. So I would chronicle and keep people abreast of what was just happening um, in, in Harlem and the people that were, you know, keeping it alive, that were changing Harlem, that were uh, part of the new Harlem, you know, um, and so that really what was the column was about. It was just about giving life, giving uh, cel- celebration to a famous community. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about Ambassador Magazine, but you are, you know, obviously continuing to do that in a much bigger and, and in a really colorful way. Um, but before we do that, I just want to, you know, take a step back here a little bit, because right. prior to that, you had a, and, and you still probably work, but... You made a name for yourself with your handsome face. And tell me a little bit. Tell us how the GQ beauty editor, which, you know, that it's not easy to catch somebody's eye at that level. You know, tell me how that happened. Tell us how that happened. And tell us a little bit about the young kid from Harlem, what your perspective was about the world 
pre-modeling, post-modeling, seeing Paris, coming from New York, coming from Harlem. I don't know, you know, if you had a, a world vision prior to your exposure in the fashion industry, but I would imagine that you did uh, once you got exposed. So walk us a little bit through that. How old were you when you got discovered? Where were you? How did it happen? So I think I was poised for that to occur and then being in the right place at the right time, Brad, um, which you which you know what I'm talking about. Um, New York was a different place back in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. And it was uh, especially if you especially if you moved in a, a space that was um, as, as diverse as the spaces we moved in. So even though I came from Harlem, it was a very Harlem at that time was very segregated. Even though it was a part of the city, you got to go back to, to that time. And I went to private school from the time I was four years old. So I was, my best friends were Jewish and different ethnicities and different economic brackets, some famous, super famous, super famous. Um, I dated Lena Horne's granddaughter. Wow. <laughs> That's my first girlfriend. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, when you start out that way, you, your, your vision of the world and, and what that's like is, is a little different than the average kid. So I wasn't quite, I was from Harlem, but I knew I had a little extra because mm -hmm. my world was always two worlds. Mm -hmm. I grew up in the projects of Harlem. I mean, the projects. I mean, I'm talking about four. You know, take away an O and an R. <laughs> oh. Which which projects? Was I grew up in um, Clinton projects in East Harlem, and East Harlem today is still hard to gentrify. So you can only imagine back then. But I had I had this other world that was more was is 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 uh, as familiar to me as Harlem was, and so I graduated from Music and Art High School, the Fame School, in '83. Went uh, was uh, admitted to Pars Parsons School Design. I was going to be a fashion designer. Not that I really wanted to be a fashion designer. I was just a. I was a, an artist. I was. A, I was someone who could draw. And there were very few limited options. It was before graphic design and things like that. I was like, oh, okay. Well, what am I going to do with my life? Okay, well, be a designer. Okay, that'll take me to Paris. Okay, that's kind of cool. That's how I thought about things, Brad. Um, I was discovered. I, had an, I did have a great look. I was told that a lot once I hit Soho. People would kind of stop me in the street. They, Japanese people would kind of come around me and start taking pictures um, of me as I was walking down the street. And I realized that I kind of had a look of the moment. Mm -hmm. And I got a job with a place called Parachute Clothing Store, which was the clothing store in Soho before Soho was Soho. I try to explain it to people. It wasn't Soho when I arrived in 1983. It was literally an extension of the Bowery. Yeah, I remember. There was nothing but, you recall, there was nothing but artist lofts. You could get a 5,000, 6,000 square foot artist loft literally for like $1,000 that you could literally divvy up between 10 people and never see each other for like $100 each. This was offered to people like us back in those days. And so I was down there in that scene. I walk into Parachute. Literally, this is what happened. I walked into Parachute to fill out a job because Parsons, you had to work. You know, you had to have a job. So I walk in, I fill out an application, and this guy comes in with this camera. He's kind of, he's, oh, I'm sorry, I'm late. He says, um, but I'm glad you're here already. Why aren't you in your clothes? And I'm kind of looking, going, uh, what is he talking about? <laughs> and the owner of the store comes over. And he goes, he's not the model. And I'm like, he said, what are you here for? And I said, well, I'm here sort of, you know, to get a job as a salesperson. And he goes, he looks at me, he says, turn around. So I turn around. <laughs> I don't know why I did it, but I, <laughs> you know, I was a kid and kids listen to adults. Yeah, that's just, yeah, I, that's all I was. I turn around and he goes, okay, you got the job as a salesperson and you also got the job, you're going to model for us. And Brad, I modeled my first, so I got a job in the hottest clothing store in the city, you know, with uh, where every major musician came, Michael Jackson, Lionel Richie, everybody came, Cher, everybody those are my clients in 1983. <laughs> and I was also then put in a magazine. I was the first black guy they used as an advertisement 
in the magazine and I was in Interview Magazine, GQ Magazine, Le Homme Vogue, because they splashed it everywhere. So in New York City, that was currency. Mm -hmm. And so I would have a look and I would go to like Roxy or any of these clubs, right? And they would literally see me and they go, oh my God, there's a guy in the magazines and open up the gates. So I'm like, oh, well, I'm 18 years old. I'm like, this is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and then literally I went to the opening of Area. You remember Area? Of course. I went to the opening of Sean Area. McPherson. There you go. I went yeah. to the opening of Area because Eric, um, oh my God, Good. Eric Good. Mm-hmm. Eric Good, who, who was the owner of Area, was dating, um, I can say it, Elizabeth Saltzman, mm-hmm. who I worked with at Parachute. So we all mm-hmm. went. And the first night, everybody's there. Everybody. Um, just everybody. Andy, my friend Keith Haring. I was really good friends mm-hmm. with Keith Haring. Big Basquiat, an unknown Madonna. We were all there. Iman, everybody. Probably you were there. And literally, a man comes up to me as I'm dancing on the floor and taps me on the shoulder and says, your energy and your look is incredible. My name is Camille Duhay, and I am the beauty editor of GQ Magazine. You have the look for now. And that was my first night. So it was always kind of like, I realized, okay, something's going on here. <laughs> Some, I mean, I wasn't a dumb kid. I was like, okay, something, I have something. And I... Um, did the magazine, did GQ magazine a second time, <laughs> now discovered by GQ. And um, I got with an agency called Pauline's and I would be the first man. And she was a famous, famous woman from Paris. Right. And I was I was basically the first um, man that was ever in, you know, in her agency. And literally because she's this, uh, uh, you know, French agent right? That everybody knew in the business. And she had this black kid. Now Vogue is calling. Who is this black kid? So Vogue is calling. GQ is calling again. I did Mademoiselle. I just was doing everything. So I literally, I really started at the top. They literally put me at the top. I literally was booking everything. But the thing was back in those days, right? I'm the generation, like guys like you and Renaud and Rashid, were generation ahead of me. And I recall honestly seeing you guys in GQ and just kind of like, I wasn't even thinking I was ever gonna be in GQ, <laughs> okay? I was just in awe, in awe of you guys. I was just like, man, I wanna dress like that. <laughs> I want those threads. Maybe I wanna have a beautiful woman like Sheila Johnson next to me, you know, or some equivalent of my group, you feel me? You know, growing up back in those days, you looked at, you are heroes. And we just wanted to kind of have some of that. But now, here I am, I'm a part of this new, this new movement. And the new movement was young people. Normally, they were a little, they had a, you know, the male models, all of them had a, a little bit more mature look. They all look like, let's just say it, men. Mm-hmm. I look like a boy man. And that really had not been done. Mm-hmm. So they had to really create this lane for me that would open up a lane that is now the lane for today. So when mm-hmm. you see like an Alton Mason, he doesn't look like a man like Renal White. He looks like a young man. Mm-hmm. And that didn't occur until I arrived in the scene. So it was always like I was always the only one that they would pick because there was nobody that looked sort of like this. Ninth, this perennial 19 year old mm-hmm. and so um, but it was a really good time I got to go to, to Paris um, I did Jean-Paul Gaultier's first show in Italy I opened several shows from Daniel Heshter and uh, Stephen Placier uh, did Chanel um, Comme les Garçons Kenzo and then did French Vogue for Yves Saint Laurent which was really unheard of. So uh, I kind of had to star career uh, as a model, you know, because when I came back here, I was just booking Macy's all the time, like in commercials. It was just like my agents were like, it doesn't seem like you don't book anything. 
Like you, you're, they always just say your smile. Like, and I, and I didn't realize what commercials really were, that it's all about your smile. You know, it, people want to feel happy. And so I guess that was kind of my, my, my tongue in trade. And I did that for about 10 years. And it was a very successful career that I recall. And one of the great parts of the career was meeting and really connecting with so many great models like Alvin, Karen Alexander, Veronica Webb, and Cynthia Bailey, and the list goes Rashumba, the list goes on and on and on that I worked with. Kirsty Bowser, Gail O'Neill, hmm. you know, um, these are my, I didn't go to college. I actually was because of the modeling, um, I left Parsons. I couldn't continue. So I f- feel like the modeling was my, you know, it was my college. Sure. Well, that that was kind of the golden era, you know, yeah. of certainly for black models rising, right. you know, to 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 prominence. Um, I want to go back and just correct something that I said. Mm-hmm. It was not Sean McPherson and Era Good. It was Serge Becker. Serge Becker. Uh, right. Area. Right. Sean McPherson right. is a is another operator that's done, you know, phenomenal places. But mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure that uh, that I cleared that up. It was Serge uh, yeah. who did area who has Miss Lily's now in New York, which right. I absolutely love too. Um, so Musa, that, that's really fascinating, man. And I can only imagine, even with your exposure through prep school and, and you know, the diversity of culture that you were experiencing in Manhattan from going uptown and then, you know, being in a, a prep school environment, an elite prep school environment and some of the exposure that you had, but the traveling, the eye opening uh, that, that that provided for you, I think was one aspect. Mm-hmm. But I also think, Musa, that your your eye got honed by working with some of these some of the world's best photographers and knowing what they saw through the lens, because now. So moving forward, you decide to launch Ambassador Magazine, which mm-hmm. is a digital publication, as I mentioned. And I'm curious as to, you know, that that to me is a you know kind of of today of the moment decision to do digital and, and not do traditional print. But um, I would imagine that your eye, man, was honed during those days as a fashion model. So talk to us a little bit about Ambassador Magazine, the inspiration behind that. And then I want to get into the summer of of soul. So you're right. Uh, You know, I had the blessing, the great fortune, Brad, of working with, honestly, some of the greatest photographers in the 20th century that most black men have not had that experience. There's only a handful, honestly. I worked with Mario Testino, Lothar Schmidt, Toscani, Robert Erdman, Bruce Weber. Just it, the list is endless. Oh, Albert Watson. Uh, um, and and the, the thing about it was when I was, you know, I've always been a personable person. A lot of models would just kind of, they're so beautiful and they would kind of do their thing and then they would kind of, okay, bye. And it would leave. And I was like, always fascinated. I always thought, I thought the photographer was the coolest person in the room. Forget me. Who am I? I'm a guy that's smiling. You're creating something, you know, because I come at it from a creative place. I was an artist. So I was watching the photographer and just watching how everything became this thing, you know, that I played a role, the hair, makeup played a role, Everyone played a role. And um, and I love the idea of how that came together in a magazine. And at the end of the end of it all, you know, it was just like, this is something that we can actually look at and, and that we created together. So years later, I said to myself, after having worked and produced many different magazines, mentioned Uptown Magazine, I helped produce um, photo shoots for Essence, Japanese Pen, Spirit and Flesh. The list goes on and on. I was kind of always a secret weapon Mm -hmm. in some cases because I could get the location. I could get the model. I could get the hair. I could get the make through my connections. You know, I never burned bridges ever. So I would be able to call up literally veteran stylists that, you know, have won awards or Mm -hmm. hair and makeup and say, hey, I just need a favor. Oh, what do you need? And so I would be doing these great spreads and I said, I'm going to do my own magazine. I'm going to put my own magazine together that will, you know, this is in 2019. I thought about it in 2018, tinkered with it. But by 2019, um, I had a nice little crew together and I knew who I wanted to, to feature and I knew what kind of magazine I wanted it to be. I said, you know, it's going to remind you a little bit of interview magazine. These are, these are magazines that 
were, were, were my Bible coming up. So it had a little interview, a little Vanity Fair, a little paper, just stuff. It had, you know, but it, it, it came back to what, they, what all those magazines really kind of captured so well was the personality. They didn't, it wasn't like Vogue, which is all about fashion and how beautiful right. you were, or GQ, how handsome you were and how great you looked. These were about human beings. Some of them famous, some of them not as famous, you know, but that were contributing to to society in some way. And I said, that's what I want to do. But I want to take it a step further, whereas I saw the limitations of interview and Vanity Fair. And a lot of that was came down to race, you know, unfortunately. And I'm not going to knock Vanity Fair, knock interview, but when you go, come through a certain lens... Right. Your lens is going to come is, is going to reflect kind of you. So when people say, well, they don't have enough black people, it's they're just coming through their lens. And if they're white, more than likely their heroes are going to be white, you know, and I didn't see things like that. I sort of said we've been so blessed, Brad, to have, you know, the beautiful thing about I think people of color is we're, we're kind of blessed to have everybody be a hero. You know what I mean? Whereas I think with white cultures, they kind of they they're here first, and then everybody comes next, right? You know, we're lucky to get a black person to cover Vogue, right? You know what I'm saying? That, that's like they, they're doing us a good favor, right? Whereas when you see things differently, you're going to give a broader and more welcoming and inclusiveness, and that was and I don't see another thing. And I'm glad I started this magazine. I'm 56 years old, so I started it mid 50s, my mid 50s, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to see things quite the way someone who's starting a magazine when they're 30, because they're also going to be talking to their generation. Mm-hmm. And I said, I want to not forget so many wonderful people that are still with us. How can we celebrate those people today in a way that is really current? So when people see these people on my cover, like if you see Carmen de Lavala, they go, oh, my God, you really... She looks like she's now. She, and I said, yeah. she is. She's a timeless, a timeless uh, woman. And we have to honor these people before, before, while they're here. I want to yeah. come back to that point because I'm reminded of that. Uh, I was listening to some, a couple of interviews that Questlove did about Summer of Soul. And some of the points that you just raised he raised that I that I think there's a connecting point. And I was talking with Ambassador Shabazz this morning, just in preparation mm-hmm. for the show today. And, um, you know, she brought up Gordon Parks. And, you know, mm-hmm. as you speak about um, the lens mm-hmm. through which we see our culture, I, mm-hmm. I think we would all be remiss to not acknowledge the brilliance uh, of, mm-hmm. of Gordon Parks. So uh-huh. I wanted to uh, to make sure that I that I mentioned that to you. And, I, and I'm sure that uh, that lens was also one that you saw the world through and, and were in, influenced by. A huge hero of mine, Gordon Parks. And I'm fortunate enough to say I got to meet and talk with Gordon Parks. And I, even when you mentioned, I'm just, a, you know, there's so many people you meet in this life, right? Right, Brad? You know, and I want to somehow include them all in this great conversation that we're having. And you definitely bring that out of me. Um, but I will just say this about, Gordon Parks, easily, easily, one of the classiest, the epitome of a gentleman. I was just in awe of this man, just so magnificent. Um, so when you mention someone like him, he's just a, you know, he's Mount Rushmore of, of, yeah. of, of his business. Obviously, we all know who James Baldwin was. We know the name Gordon Parks. We know some of these Harlem icons. But these were our role models, too, even today. So in terms of how we carry ourselves, the standards that we know have been set. um, And I just think the more we can model that for the generation that's coming behind us, you know, I think uh, that that's a that's a service. And again, going back to you as an ambassador. Um, you know, that's that's part of the mission that you fulfill. So let's talk about um, Summer of Soul. 
which is, man, you mentioned this project to me several months ago and I was just scratching my head. I said, what the hell is he talking about? There's no (laughs) way that the concert could have Nina Simone, Stevie Wonder, you know, be the equivalent of Woodstock. And I never heard of it, you know, and I was 10 blocks away from where it happened. But that is, in fact, the case. So something like 45 to 50 hours of film footage from a concert that was filmed during the summer of 1969. Um, Questlove was approached to do this. Musa was four years old and true to his title was right uptown in Harlem. What you were doing at a show like that at four, I'm sure is a story. Um, but I, I want you to just elaborate a little bit on that project. And just to, you know, to set the stage, the summer of 69 followed obviously 1968 when we lost Dr. King. He was assassinated. We had gone through a very rough period in the country. There were riots in 68 following Dr. King's death. None in Harlem. Uh, Mayor Lindsay, if I remember correctly, went uptown and, and pleaded with folks not to uh, not to riot. So there really wasn't an uprising then. But for the summer of 69, mm-hmm. there was a lot of talk about the potential for powder cake. Right. right. And that the, the irony is that some of these things they were talking about, police brutality or over policing, they called it back then, lack of suitable housing. Some of these things could have just played in the news from last year, right? But we're going back to 1969. So just setting that stage, that was the atmosphere. And somehow this concert got the go ahead because the powers that be thought that it would quell the the the, the potential for disruptions for social unrest yes. and so the 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 talent that appeared there Musa mm-hmm. can talk about but it was this event that we are going to now have the opportunity to see when it makes its debut on uh, on Hulu uh, in July so talk to us about Summer of Soul man wow so um, I'll talk to you about how I got involved with the project first and then. Then, then the actual, you know, being there. So I got involved with the project, honestly, on Facebook. One of the associate producers was, uh, you know, looking for people who had been there. And so I, I being the Harlem ambassador, I get a lot of uh, requests. Say, hey, Musa, can you help us out? We're opening something. Hey, Musa, we're going to open up the school. We need kids. So I was always just disseminating information to my community, right? But one this particular day, um, one of the associates producers um, DM me and said, hey, we're looking for people who are at the Harlem Cultural Festival in 1969. Do you know anybody? Or can you help us? And literally I typed M-E, me. I was there. And they were like, hold up. How old are you? First off. <laughs> And I told them my age and they said, well, wait a minute, you were four years old. What do you recall? And I said to them, it's my first memory, my very first memory. I'm, 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 listen, when I say I'm born to be this person, when I can say to anybody, my first memory is the Harlem Cultural Festival of 1969. And it's so vivid in my head. I can remember colors, smells. I had a photographic memory and they called me, put me, uh, you know, Questless people did a pre-interview. I said a couple of things and then they called me into the studio and Questlove did the, you know, did the interview. And um, it was a magical moment, I think, for both of us, everybody that was there, because they were literally hearing it from a child's perspective that mm-hmm. had this memory that was so vivid that the footage that they had, I was narrating. That's crazy. It, it, it shocked everybody. It shocked me. When I saw the footage, I went, I, I, I couldn't handle it at first because it had been in my head, locked away in my head mm-hmm. for 50 years and locked away in a basement for 50 years, someone's basement. So here it would be that I would become the anchor, the anchor for Summer of Soul. And I realized that God, I do believe in God, that God had me there. God had gave me this life that I have as an ambassador. And it would play full circle today, you know, uh, as being a part of an incredible moment. Uh, Brad, this film is such an incredible moment 
I mean, like I, like you, you know, it was Harlem Cultural Festival of 1969. There was a lot going on. You know, I was uh, my my mom's boyfriend um, lived across the street from Mount Morris Park. We didn't call it Marcus Garvey Park back then. It was Mount Morris Park, but mm-hmm. he lived across the street from the actual festival, and so he wanted to expose us to culture, and um, he did. And we went a, a, a few Sundays, I think it was Sundays, a few weekends. And I remember everything. It was just so many people. But what I recall most was the acts mm-hmm. that were on stage. So I remember Nina Simone, The Fifth Dimension, Sly and the Family Stone. You mentioned John Lindsay. He was, excuse me, Mayor John Lindsay. Mm-hmm. He was there. Reverend Jesse Jackson, Moms Mabley, Mahalia Jackson, Mavis Staples, David Ruffin, Gladys Knight and the Pips. I mean, this is a who's who of our musical history. It was. and, And the thing was, what I recall most, what I recall most, even more so, was the people that when you looked, you couldn't look anywhere without seeing a mother a father, grandparents, and children, Black people, all together, all in unison. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, man. You know, the, the, some of the clips, Musa, that they, um, that they show now, um, some of the trailers show our crowd shots. And I've only seen a few minutes interspersed with some Questlove interviews. And what you just said is what struck me is how many smiling faces were just out there in that audience taking in those moments. You know, I wanted to go back to um, what I was referring to. Questlove said something about, um, and he's a music head, obviously. He talked about how, you know, he and his buddies, and I know we do this, you know, we have you heard this song? You always like to get something that nobody's heard of, right? And he's got records that nobody's ever heard of. But he was dumbfounded that this event on a magnitude of, of what we are describing could have possibly happened and he not have known about it. And it reminded me, man, and I want to tie this into how important I see the role that you play with Ambassador Magazine and what you continue to do by being the ambassador. Um, he said that he, he felt cheated of something that might have inspired him one way or another. And I'm paraphrasing that those aren't his exact words. But when we don't know about stories and about people and about things that preceded us, the way that I related to that was there's a there's a book that I read recently that highlighted by Alice Randall called Black Bottom Saints, which talked about the Detroit nightlife in um, in the 40s and 50s. And I discovered through her book, the first the first African-American to write a book about mixology. Mm. I'd never heard of him. I went to I studied hotel restaurant management in college and I've been in the business for 40 years. I'd never heard of Thomas Bullock. And he created these amazing cocktails, man, from, you know, back in the 1920s. And and it should be in the record books. Anyway, I felt a little cheated. I was like, man, if I had only known that mixology was something that we did historically, it might have influenced me one way or another. So the point that I'm making here, Musa, to tie it back to to you and what you're doing is and it's it's no accident that you're you, you become the spokesperson for this amazing film that I can't wait to see on Hulu in July. But through your magazine, Mm-hmm. Through the people that you are choosing to highlight. And as you said, you're, you're talking about people. These aren't just they're beautiful photographs. And we're grateful for those of us who have been on the receiving end of um, your, your, your talented eye and, and the great photographers you've worked with. But you're, you're allowing these stories to be told. Mm-hmm. And I just want to kind of close on that note and ask you you know, acknowledge that I really think that that's an important role that you're playing. And I think you're doing it magnificently. What do you see for the future of your media company? And uh, do, you, do you see it growing? What, what, what do you see down the road there? Oh, um, thank you, by the way, for, for everything you said. Um, really appreciate it. Um, I see the future of the magazine just really broadening the stories. Uh, I think we, I can never run out of stories. That's one, that's one thing. And they don't all, in like, you know, people say, is it a Harlem magazine? And I said, well, I'm from Harlem. 
So there'll be people in Harlem that I'm going to highlight, but our experience goes beyond 125th Street. So we've you know, been to California, we've been to Fort Lauderdale, we've been to Atlanta, we'll be hitting you know, Detroit, we'll be hitting Chicago, we'll be hitting DC, you know, South Carolina, we'll be hitting them beyond that, Brazil, we'll be hitting uh, Paris, you know, our stories, di- dis- diaspora of stories is, is important to, you know, I always tell my, my, my daughter, my children that, you know, you are such a, you are part of such a large family and, you know, don't, you know, you, you've got us, but you've also got your, your, your African brothers, your, your Caribbean brothers, your, you know what I'm saying? That we go so far beyond. And I think we need to, uh, realize that that there are so much you know my mother talked talked about Hugh Masakela and Miriam Makeba when I was coming up <laughs> you know um, you know so we I I already knew that we had brothers and sisters across the pond across the waters that were um, you know important to our story and our culture so I see it only expanding I see different people coming on board who can only help make it grow. You know, uh, maybe we'll do some TV stuff. You know, eventually we'll go into TV and things like that. But I'm having a ball (laughs) at the moment. I try to keep sometimes even in the moment and just enjoy life today and what's happening right now. You know, uh, talking to you, meeting Ambassador Shabazz, I think she'd be great for our cover. Ambassador Shabazz, come on. (laughs) <laughs> um, would be excellent uh, cover story. Um, so, you know, I'm always looking at life, you know, or at least try to not look too far ahead because, you know, I really love what's happening at the moment. And um, people that are in my life right now, I want them to know how much I love who they are right now and today. Because, you know, I've lost so many people in my life. And if I had them just today, you know, I'd be honoring them right now. So sometimes I just want to love what's happening in the moment. Like I love what's happening for you, which is show, which is important. It's doing exactly what I'm doing. It's bringing incredible people and their stories through you. You have a wonderful, incredible voice. Was telling people were just calling me after we would, we did our our uh, cover story together. Like, oh my god, his voice! I said, no, isn't he perfect? And um, you know, I'm jealous a little bit of that because <laughs> it's just it's perfect for what you're doing. And I and I think more what we're doing is just really um, important for what's happening right now. Thank you, thank you very much, man, for the for the warm <laughs> words. I, I certainly appreciate it. And, you know, for for taking the time today. So tell uh, our Corner Table Talk audience where they can find you. Give us your socials and and lay that out for us, if you will. Sounds good. So um, you can find us on these social media platforms, Facebook at Ambassador Digital Magazine. Just go and like our page. YouTube, it's a free subscription. Also Ambassador Digital Magazine. Um, Instagram, it's ambassador underscore mag. And then there's our website, which is ambassadordigitalmag.com. Fantastic. And uh, we are going to also be looking forward to seeing you um, Summer Soul. And I will be seeing you next time I'm in New York. Man, we got some spots to hit. So thank you so so good to have you, man. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. What a great conversation. I really enjoyed that. Ambassador Shabazz is here with How We Move. What'd you think? Well, I appreciated it as well. You know, just listening to him, your guest, Musa Jackson, recapturing culture and offering some kind of like tag team between his childhood, his journeys, and reaching back and um, being a kind of conduit, both through photo- photograph and the interviews and his enthusiasm, mostly. I mean, I'm excited to hear that means it'll never go away. 
you know, as long as he's here, more and more persons will learn about the journeys that he's touched down on. And the hearkening back to people of note um, that um, gave us some historic food is really essential. So I'm here in New York myself, or New York, New Jersey, you know, touched down after a year. And just the, the reflection of what I saw a year ago and what was gone as I shared with you earlier, and what has sprung up, you know, in that time. So while we will talk about narratives of our various neighborhoods or communities or what impacted the city or our respective populations in, mm-hmm. in the light of the ache of 2020, sure enough, it would, they were areas and times of opportunities for others. And so it makes me excited about the innovations that are born, but also very curious about the things that are already erected and, you know, 20 stories high and how do we bridge those gaps? So while here and, and yesterday I was in Harlem, briefly at, the uni- at uh, City College, uh, meeting the president learning what he wants to do between the academic institution and its role in Harlem and wanting to have a real natural fusion, not for those that are just, you know, students, but the community. So listening to Musa Jackson as the ambassador of Harlem was really exciting for me. It makes me um, really want to sit down and have an additional conversation with him because while I'm not from Harlem, it is where my first adult apartment was. And of course, my family had its place in Harlem, both my dad and also being descendant of the Garvey uh, route in Harlem. And so when we think about that and all the restorations that are taking place between New York, you know, Massachusetts, Jersey, it takes me up to Martha's Vineyard. I have a lot of friends right now who are preparing their first getaways back up to the vineyard and all the narratives and stories that come out of there, all the rebooting, all the restorations, all the preservations. One friend of mine who is um, Congresswoman Barbara Lee, there's a an amazing documentary that'll be aired at the, or featured at the Martha's Vineyard African American Film Festival this summer in August. It's called Speaking Truth to Power. Worth seeing. Oh my God. When you talk about a person who was just living a day's life doing what she was doing. We know her name now because she's been around a long time. But when she started, she was just doing what she was supposed to do. And so as she celebrates her 75th birthday this year, although it doesn't show, um, it shows you the journey of people who really just sort of carry that torch. And that'll take place. That's That first public screening will be in Martha's Vineyard. There's uh, Stephen Curry's um, wife, Aisha Curry, has a list of, you know, 10 places that she suggests people go. And one of those persons, the pl- first place on her list was Oak Bluffs Inn in Martha's Vineyard, you know, that had his own historic restoration and is kind of like the getaway space and place for people whose, whose names we know, but really want to have a holistic family getaway there. And as you and I spoke earlier Um, about this other significant place that was founded or originally built in the late 1800s, um, Shearer's Cottage. It was initially built, I think it was 1870 that it was built. And then 100 years later, um, it was bought and restored, and even more recently by a third owner, owner. And it happens to be a place that is right now getting ready to hunker down and prepare its ribbon cuttings for the fall. And so I just hope that we stay in touch with these uh, foundational spaces and places that speak to the narrative of black, brown life in the United States. We are not new with our grandeur, with our ownership, with our proprietorship, with our gifts of giving and impacting culture. But I think as we listen over the last month or so about Greenwood and places across the United States, Greenwood, Tulsa area, that there were places in the United States in late 1800s. The HBCUs were largely established in the late 1800s and early 1900s. So that our gifts, our significance in terms of classical culture has long in motion. It didn't just start in 2020. We have to bridge that gap. So young people who say Black Lives Matter even aren't saying it just as an impetus, but they realize that that narrative started when Garvey spoke, when Du Bois spoke, when Mary McLeod Bethune spoke, and not just in a mere mention, but in real investment. 
and that in towns and villages across the United States, we were very present and intentional and created these institutions and spaces and gathering places for our families to sustain legacies. Yeah, I think you're, you know, you're, you're hitting right on it. And, you know, as, as you're describing uh, some of the places, I, I go back to Oak Bluffs on Martha's Vineyard. And, you know, so often and, and look, there's there's nothing wrong with having a good time. We all want to want to party and, and like music and dancing and, and that. But these times are serious. And places like Martha's Vineyard, Oak Bluffs, where we get to rub shoulders with one another and over cocktail parties and what have you, you don't always necessarily need to look for the party. You know, it's it's about being in a community and, and it, learning about its history and Places like Shira Cottage, who have been around for, for as long as they have, and the Oak Bluffs Inn, um, are, are worth knowing about. And Martha's Vineyard has some some great people whose names you would not know. But, yeah. you know, if you ever have the chance to spend a little bit of time up there, it's just a, it's a really, really unique and, and beautiful island. Um, before I let you go, I wanted to just kind of circle back to this idea about ambassadorship, because that was the through line in my conversation with Moose. It's what I've been thinking about lately. And, it, and clearly it's, it's what you do. You know, just it's your it's your lifeblood. Um, just drop a little bit of knowledge on us about how you see that role in the world as as you move around, even in familiar spaces like Harlem and, you know, potentially faraway places that uh, you're a first time visitor in. But you bring that spirit, you bring that goodness, that goodwill. Um, just I want to leave it up to you to give me a final point on uh, the ambassador, the idea of the ambassador. Well, you know, there's the career ambassador and it's appointed and then there are those who live the life of based on their nature. And I think I was blessed in inheriting a lineage, you know, beyond my direct parents, but the way in which the, my grandparents before them and the people that they introduced me to living a life in context to plenty, not just myself, not being singular. I think there's no such thing as an ambassador who serves well if he or she is serving themselves. And so I think there are probably more people with the characteristics of what a real ambassador should be, but they don't realize that they can be appointed or anointed in, as such. So while my post should have been four years. My formal post has now 19 years, and it's largely the way it is being served. So it's not based on a term. It's based on engagement, human engagement, being able to translate. When I was young, I wanted to be able to speak at least six of Paul Robeson's uh, 12 languages. My mother rolled her eyes, of course, like, sure, if you could just get one grade right, we'll we can, you know, celebrate the others. And I wanted to be an ambassador. Traditional route would mean going into foreign affairs and um, uh, being an attorney or something. That wasn't the route. It was really just an appointment. And I wanted to make sure it wasn't a celebrity appointment. I wanted to do the work. So I've been able to serve as ambassador at large because I really dig culture. I can't wait to translate the things that are different and or united so that we can get to a, a um, collaborative end. That, to me, is the rubrics I enjoy all the time. And I know the next series of travel we'll be doing between this year and forward will in involve a full immersion for even the short-term traveler. You can't get on that plane and go to wherever we're going if you can't say 10 words in that language. I want mm -hmm. you to land like you're a resident. Land like you are a citizen. So that when we walk away and you return back home to the United States, you realize that you indeed have the wingspan of being part of the international population and not the usual relegated isolation that we're we're um, living in. Well, we look forward to that. And we are going to build to uh, some more of our, our programming. We will build those uh, that information into uh, the how we move segment as uh, as we move forward. So Ambassador Shabazz, it's always a pleasure. Lovely to see you. you I too. will uh, be checking in soon. Bye bye. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson, produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson, coordinating producer Lauren Turner. Theme music, Life Goes On by Bryce Vine. Executive producers, Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. 
Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a Say It Loud Network production.